Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 21. This morning we will again be continuing our study in what is known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse, the the final public teaching of his ministry before his passion. Our focus this morning will again be on verses 20 through 24, and particularly this morning on the last phrase of verse 24. So if you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 881, Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24. This is the very Word of God. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles. Are fulfilled. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you humbly now, asking that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us through your word preached, that he would open our eyes to see, that he would open our ears to hear, that he would let us receive your truth and be sanctified by that truth and that he would cause it to bring forth fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In our previous study of this discourse, we have seen that it begins when Jesus tells his disciples that the temple that they so admire, the the temple that was at the very center of their culture, that the day is coming when that temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another that is not thrown down. Naturally, when the disciples hear this, they they want to know when this will happen. And so they ask in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? It is this question that Jesus is addressing in the verses before us. This morning, as we saw last Sunday, Jesus first gives them the sign. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So the sign, the the sign that these things are about to take place, the, the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed and all Jerusalem with it, the sign is the city surrounded by armies. As I said last week, to some, that doesn't seem like much of a sign. After all, if if Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, it doesn't take a prophet to, to predict that its desolation has come near. However, a first century Jew would not have thought in those terms. A first century Jew would not have shared that perspective. After all, they were God's chosen 
people. Their help was in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. They believed that not only could, but God would deliver them out of the hand of whatever enemy came against them. The enemy may appear to have the upper hand for a season, even as Rome appeared to have the upper hand in the first century. But the enemy would not ultimately prevail. God would not allow his city to be desolated. He would certainly not allow his temple to be destroyed. At least, that's what they thought. And therefore, the the first century Jew would have found Jesus' prediction shocking. It would have been shocking for them to, to hear one who was renowned to be a prophet say that God was not going to protect and preserve his city. And in a sense, that's the point. That's exactly what Jesus is intending to do. Jesus is directly challenging their assumption, or we should say their their presumption, that God would necessarily protect and preserve Jerusalem simply because it was Jerusalem. Simply because it was his city. Simply because it was the site of his holy temple. Jesus was telling the crowd that when the armies came, that would not be the moment when God went to work getting glory for himself over the nations. But rather, when the armies came, that would be the moment when God would allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. That would be the moment when God would allow his city to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. The question is why? Why would God allow Jerusalem to be destroyed? Why would God allow his temple to be desolated? And this is the question that Jesus answers for us in verse 22. Look again at what he says, beginning in verse 21. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. Why? For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Jesus says the desolation that is coming upon Jerusalem is an act of vengeance. Now most people today assume that that vengeance is a bad thing, that that it's something that's wrong in and of itself, but this is not the biblical perspective. Vengeance is is defined as a punishment inflicted or or a retribution exacted for a wrong committed. As such, vengeance is justice. Vengeance is is justice executed. It It is giving to a person according to their works. It is giving them what they deserve. It's wrong when we take vengeance into our own hands, for we are neither the judge nor the executioner. It is wrong for us to to take vengeance ourselves because we have no right to punish the wrongdoer. But we must understand that vengeance itself is not wrong. On the contrary, our God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And Jesus is saying that God will do exactly that with respect to Jerusalem. He will allow his city to be desolated as an act of vengeance. He will allow it to be trampled underfoot 
as repayment for the wrongs that it has committed. So the question is, what wrongs is he talking about? What are the wrongs that that Jerusalem has committed that deserve such wrath? Well, to this point in his Gospel, Luke has made it abundantly clear that the wrong of Jerusalem, the wrong which Jerusalem has committed, the wrong that deserves to be punished, is unbelief. Despite having every advantage, despite being God's covenant people, despite having God's law and knowing His will, despite all of this, the people of Israel have failed to walk in the footsteps of faith. They have failed to honor God as God or or to give Him thanks. They have failed to love their, uh, their neighbor as themselves. They have failed to love God with all their hearts. And therefore, they would receive from God according to their works. For God is an impartial judge. God is a God who shows no partiality. What we need to see, what what we need to see as the church today is this. The judgment that came upon them is the same judgment we deserve. For like them, we have walked in unbelief. We have failed to honor God as God. We have, have failed to love Him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. And therefore, we deserve the same judgment that came upon them in A.D. 70. Now, I know that's hard for some of us to believe. I know it's hard for me. It's hard for me to see my sins as worthy of such judgment. It's it's hard for me to believe that my sins are are deserving of such wrath. Yes, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Bin Laden. I'm not a mass murderer. I'm not a a serial killer. I'm not a human trafficker. My my sins are, are much more ordinary. My sins are much more run of the mill. Maybe you've thought along those same lines. It's the way we today tend to think. But of course our thinking isn't accurate. Our, our self-assessments aren't correct. We do not see our sin as it is. And therefore, we do not understand, we, we do not comprehend the intensity of the wrath of God that stands against us. And this is why it's so important for us to to consider carefully a passage like this, a a passage we might be tempted just to skip over. We need to meditate upon the destruction of Jerusalem because in Jerusalem's desolation, we see a preview, a, a foreshadow of the judgment we deserve. The judgment we will receive apart from Christ. You see, this is why He came. We are sinners. We are justly deserving of God's holy wrath. As hard as it is for us to believe, what was true of them is true of us. And we are utterly and completely without hope except for God's sovereign mercy in Christ. He is 
our hope. He is our propitiation, the Scriptures say. He is that sacrifice that, that turns away the wrath of God, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Even as Sam said this morning, He was stricken for our iniquities. Our iniquities have been laid upon Him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Israel rejected Jesus, thinking that they had no need of such a Savior. After all, they were not Gentile sinners. Their, their sins were not that bad. But in doing so, they rejected the only hope offered to them. They rejected the only one who could give them peace with God. And so we need to learn from them. We need to see that the one they rejected is the one who is our only hope. If we would have peace with God, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If we reject Him, there is no other sacrifice for sins. This is the lesson of the destruction of Jerusalem. In it, we see the wrath of God poured out against sin, and we are reminded that apart from Christ, there is no escape from the coming wrath of God. But at the very end of this passage, Jesus says something interesting, and it's what I want us to focus on in our time left this morning. Look again at the very end of verse 24. Jesus has been talking about the judgment that is coming. He's been talking about the wrath that is about to be poured out on Jerusalem. And notice what he says. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The word until clearly suggests that the, the desolation that is coming upon Jerusalem will not last. Forever. It's, a, it's a preview of the final judgment. It is not the final judgment. It will last only until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, Jerusalem's desolation will be over. It will be finished. It will be complete. And so there are two questions before us. What is this times of the Gentiles? What is Jesus referring to? And what does it mean for those times to be Fulfill. Let's look at each of these questions. First, what does Jesus mean by the times of the Gentiles? Now, there are some who believe that the, the times of the Gentiles simply refers to that period of time during which the Gentiles will control Jerusalem. The times of the Gentiles is the time that they are trampling Jerusalem underfoot. And if that is correct then Jesus is simply saying that Jerusalem will remain trampled. It will remain underfoot until its desolation has run its full course. In other words, God has no plans of, of cutting short their judgment. Jerusalem will not be paroled. It will not receive early release. On the contrary, Jerusalem will serve its full sentence. And I believe that this is correct as far as it goes. Jesus is saying that, that Jerusalem will, will suffer the full punishment that God has laid out for it. But, but I think Jesus is saying more than just this. When Jesus says the times of the Gentiles, 
He's actually describing the, the age in which we currently live. He is, he is describing the, the present period of God's redemptive plan. The, the pleasant period of God's work of redemption being unfolded in history. He is saying that now is the age of the Gentiles. The age of the nations. But what does that mean? What, what does it mean to say that this is the time of the Gentiles? I believe that it means that the, the present age is the age in which God is causing His gospel to grow and bear fruit among the nations. He is, he is calling the nations into covenant with Him. Remember, in the Old Testament, God had entered into a covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants to a thousand generations. And at the heart of that covenant was the promise that God would be their God and, and they would be His people. That was the blessing of the Old Testament, that, that they would be the people of God, that God would be God to them. But now in the present age, God is calling the Gentiles into that relationship. He is, he is bringing them into that covenant. The Gentiles, in the mystery of mysteries, are becoming the true children of Abram. That's what Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. He says, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, no matter what your ancestry, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's child. You are an heir of the promises made to him. And this is the reality that, that Paul goes on to describe for us in, in Romans chapter 11. Maybe you re remember the passage. He, he uses the image of an olive tree. The olive tree represents God's covenant people. This is, this is His tree. And he says that now these, these wild olive branches, that's the Gentiles, these, these wild olive branches are being grafted in to God's cultivated tree. And it is that image that I think helps us understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this being the time of the Gentiles. So turn there with me. I want us to look at this passage in some detail. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Page 946 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 11, but actually flip back one page because I want to I familiarize you with this section of Paul's letter beginning all the way back in, in Romans chapter 9. If you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans, you know that in the, the first eight chapters, Paul has been uh, giving us an extended exposition of the gospel, the gospel that he longs to preach in Rome. And in verse 9, he, he comes and he says uh, to us, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of who? My brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul remembers all the advantages that were given to the Jews, all the advantages given to Abraham's physical descendants. He says, to them belong the covenants, the promises, the glory, the worship. All of it was, was theirs. And yet, despite all of these advantages, they have not believed. They have not received the, the salvation offered. And why? 
Paul tells us in verse 32. Why have they been excluded from the salvation? Why have they missed out on all that was promised? Because they did not pursue it, verse 32. What is it? The righteousness of God. Righteousness with Him. Justification. They did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They wanted to relate to God through their own effort. They wanted to establish their own righteousness with God. And so Paul says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Christ. They wanted a relationship with God. They wanted to be the covenant people of God. But but they could not abide a Savior who said they were unworthy. They could not abide a Savior who said that you must depend wholly and completely upon me. They could not abide a Savior who said you are sick in need of a doctor. You are dead in need of resurrection. They, they, after all, were were Jews, not Gentile sinners. And so they rejected the gospel that Christ proclaimed. It's what Paul tells us in the first verses of chapter 10. He says that they were zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. They refused to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, but instead sought to establish a righteousness of their own through the law and thereby earn their salvation. They wanted to stand before God on their own two feet. They wanted to earn God's blessing. They wanted to establish their own righteousness. And Paul says because they chose this path, They failed to attain what they were seeking. They failed to attain righteousness. Why? Because what Paul says in Galatians. If you're going to relate to God through the law, then you must abide by all things written in the book of the law. And no flesh will ever be justified that way. You will never be good enough to earn God's salvation. For what did Jesus say? We are sick in need of a physician. We are dead in our sins in need of resurrection. He came to give life to the dead. He came to to heal the ailing. It's what we sometimes sing. The only fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. And this is what the Jews would not do. Like the Pharisee praying in the temple who, who thanked God that He was not like other men. They refused to own their sin. And they refused to look to Christ alone for their salvation. And therefore they missed. They missed out on the blessings of the covenant that were offered them. And this is the situation that that Paul has in mind at the beginning of chapter 11. Notice what he asks. He says, has God then rejected His people? If the Jews missed out on salvation, if the the Jews have not received the Gospel, if they have have denied the Messiah, have they been rejected by God? Are they a cursed people? And Paul answers immediately in as strong a language as he can muster. He says, by no means. But how can he say that? How, How can he deny what seems so empirically Obvious. He gives us two reasons. First, he says, there, there is a remnant. After all, Paul himself is a Jew. And there are many other Jews who, who have believed. God has preserved for himself a remnant among the Jewish people. While, while many did not believe, there were some who did. 
And I think this is especially important for us today in the church to to remember that the Jews are are not a cast-off people. That that it is not the gospel for the Gentiles, but not the Jews. But it is the gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Paul says, those who believe, whether they be Jew or Gentile, they will be saved. None who calls upon the name of the Lord will be turned away. And so first, there is a remnant But he adds to this a second reason. He also says that the Jews are not a rejected people because eventually the growth of the gospel among the nations will stir up the Jews to a holy jealousy. A holy jealousy, a righteous jealousy, a jealousy that will lead them to repentance and faith. We, We see this in chapter 11, verse 25. Notice what he says. He says, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, there it is again, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a a hardening that that has come upon Israel. They have been hardened in their unbelief. And, And because of their hardness and unbelief, the gospel has flowed to the nations and it has been growing and bearing fruit among the Gentiles. But the day is coming when their hardness will be softened. The day is coming when when their eyes will be opened and their ears will be unplugged and they will see the truth of who Christ is and they will repent and bow before Him and receive through Him salvation and eternal life. And I think this is exactly what Jesus has in mind in Luke 21 when He refers to this age as the time of the Gentiles. He's referring to the present period of redemptive history when God is causing the gospel to grow and bear fruit among the nations. He's referring to this this present period where we see what Paul says is both the kindness and the severity of God. We see God's kindness in the fact that, that all those who believe will be saved. He will turn away none who, who call upon the name of His Son. Whosoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. You understand, of course, that 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 promise is a promise of grace. There's no reason why why faith ought to save you. There's no reason why why faith ought to receive the, the eternal life of God. It is God's promise that says, if you will simply believe, if you will call upon the name of my Son, if you will receive and rest upon Him alone for your salvation, I will not turn you away. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, it matters not. If you believe on Him, you will be saved. This is the kindness of God. But in this present age of the Gentiles, we see also His severity. Because He says, if you reject my Son... If you reject the Savior whom I sent, there is no other sacrifice for sins. There is no other way to be righteous in my sight. If you take the path of the law, you will find yourself under curse. For cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So we see both the kindness and the severity of God in this present age, this age when the gospel flows to the nations, 
When the Gospel is, is calling many from every tongue to faith in the one Savior. So this brings us to our second question. And our second question is this, what does it mean for these times of the Gentiles to be fulfilled? I think we, we see it there in, in Romans. What does Paul say? He says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until then, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, so what does that mean? It means when, when the full number of those among the nations that God has, has intended to save, that God has chosen for himself, when that full number has come in, those days will be fulfilled. It doesn't mean that every Gentile is going to be saved, but rather the full number of those whom God has chosen for himself. At that moment, God will undo the hardness of Israel's heart. At that moment, He will grant to them in far greater numbers than just the present remnant. He will grant to them repentance unto life. Again, this, this doesn't mean that every Jew will be saved, but it means, or seems to mean, that in far greater numbers than we presently see, their eyes will be open to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And so when you put that together with what Jesus is saying in, in Luke 21, what you, what you see is that when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, at that time the desolation of Jerusalem will be over. The desolation of Jerusalem will end. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot until that day. But when that day comes, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Jerusalem's desolation will be over. It will be complete. It will have run its full course. And here's where we have to begin to ask questions. Especially in our present context where, where so many see the fulfillment of, of these words in, in the newspaper and in the news reports. So many Christians have been so excited about the events that they have seen unfolding in the Middle East for the last 70 years, and, and again, even in the last few months. Israel is a state again. A nation formed in 1948, recognized by the UN in 1949. A nation that declared Jerusalem to be its capital in, in 1980. And just Recently, in the last few months, we have heard the President of the United States declare that he intends to move our embassy to Jerusalem. Christians get excited when they read these kinds of things. They, they get excited when they, when they hear these kinds of things. Does this mean that the desolation of, of Jerusalem has, has come to an end, or at least is, is coming to an end? I don't think there are many who would say that the desolation is, is completely over. Not as long as the Dome of the Rock continues to stand on the Temple Mount. Not as long as there is a, 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 an Islamic shrine on the, on the place where the Temple once stood. I don't think many would say that its desolation is, is completely over. But do these events, do the events of the last 70 years suggest that the end has begun? Do they mark the beginning of the end? I love the candor with which R.C. Sproul addresses these questions in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. He, he says simply, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to make of all these news reports. And I want to say the same thing. I, I don't know. And honestly, I want to say more than that because I also want to say I don't think anybody else knows either. It's possible. 
And I want you to hear me say that. It's, it's possible. It's, it's possible that God intends to gather the, the physical descendants of Abraham in the geographic area of the promised land and to give them back sovereign control of his city before he grants to them repentance unto life in, in far greater numbers. That's, that's possible. Maybe that's what God is, is doing. It's, it's certainly something worthy to, to pray for, to ask for. With Paul, we ought to long to see many upon many Jews come to faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I want you to hear me say that there is no necessary reason to think that the possession of the physical location of Jerusalem by the physical descendants of Abraham has anything to do with the end of its desolation. After all, the state that currently controls Jerusalem, at least in large measure, while it is comprised of Abraham's physical descendants, it is not comprised of Abraham's children. By and large, the modern state of Israel is not comprised of true Jews. Think about what John the Baptist said to Jews. Do not say we have Abraham for our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these very stones. Do not think that physical descendants from Abraham is enough, John said. And Jesus said much the same thing, only more pointedly. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But you're not. Instead, you're seeking to kill me. And he went on to say, you are doing the works of your true father, the devil. And Paul, of course, rings the same bell. He, he says in his letter to the Romans, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are Abraham's children simply because they are his offspring. On the contrary, as I said, in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, it is those who have faith in Christ who are the true children of Abraham. And therefore, those who, who presently control Jerusalem, as unpopular as it is to say in the modern evangelical church, they are functionally Gentiles. They are not Abraham's true children and therefore, from a New Testament perspective, there is no reason to think that their possession of the city marks the end of Jerusalem's desolation. Yes, God may be gathering the physical descendants of, of Abraham in one location because he intends to do something great, and we should pray towards that end. But I want you to hear me say that until we see Jerusalem filled with followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot say it's desolation is over. And this is an important point for us to grasp. I know I'm over time, but just let me, let me say this. It is an important point for us to grasp today. Jerusalem was destroyed because of unbelief, because they rejected their Messiah, because they rejected the long-promised Savior, because they wanted to relate to God on their own terms, through their own works. They had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And the Jewish nation today, by and large, yes, there are exceptions, but the Jewish nation today largely continues in that unbelief. They largely continue to reject Jesus. They reject the Christ. 
And until they repent and turn to him in faith, they remain a people without hope. They remain a people under judgment. For there is no salvation in Judaism. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Apart from him, there is no righteousness. Apart from him, there is no peace with God. And so therefore, our prayer for the Jews ought not to be, first and foremost, that they would regain control of the city called Jerusalem. That ought not to be our highest ambition, but rather our chief prayer for them ought to be that they would come to know and believe in Jesus. For He is their only hope, even as He is our only hope. And I think we can pray for such a revival. We can pray for it boldly. Because both Jesus and Paul give us reason to believe that the day is coming when the hearts of Abraham's physical descendants will be softened to the gospel of Jesus Christ and through faith in Him, they might become true children of Abraham. See, the Jews were condemned not because they were Jews, but because of unbelief. And Paul says, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted back into God's olive tree. For God has the power to graft them in again. That is the gospel. Whosoever believes, Jew or Gentile, it matters not. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you believe that? I pray that you do. And I pray that our Jewish neighbors will come to believe it too. That they might again be true children of Abraham. Let us pray together. Father God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder of the gospel. I pray that we would not long for the wrong things, but Father, that we would long that all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, might come to know and believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. For is it in Him alone that we have salvation? Father God, may this gospel put down deep root in our heart and may it bring forth abundant fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.